UTM parameters are really dangerous because like, you know, I can run a Facebook ad and I can see you click this Facebook ad. Yeah. I know exactly who you are, what you did, like, you know, what gets you excited. And so I understand where Apple's coming from, from this more than I understand from Facebook, like iOS 14.5. But it does seem like they're making e-commerce harder and harder at every turn that they can. This is Limited Supply, the place for refreshingly real takes on what D2C is really like. We're your hosts, Nick and Moyes. Let's start talking about money. TV advertising isn't just for big budget brands. Smart operators are getting started with as little as $10,000 using the Tatari platform to run ads across both linear and CTV. Check out the three-minute demo video at tatari.tv slash limited supply. Okay, Nick, episode three, themed season five. I'm excited. We've both got fresh cut beards. We <laughs> had to do this yesterday. Uh, okay, theme of today is current events when it comes to e-commerce. Yeah. Uh, we both brought in some topics today. Uh, I don't know what your topics are. Uh, I've got my own sheet. You don't know what my topics are. No minor gold. So let's start with one of yours. I'm curious, to hear, what, what's a current event in e-commerce that's important to you right now? And tell me about it. Have you heard about the upcoming iOS 17 change? No. Okay, so- There's you know, another- God, There's going to be another so one. prolific. So they do it, of course, in the name of privacy. Yes. The um, press release that Apple put out in June talked about it a little bit. You know, they position everything as like, this is the best for you. We're protecting you as the as our user. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they show examples. Yeah, that's why I buy the iPhone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they show examples of like when an app tries to get access to your photos, it'll now tell you how many photos you're sharing. So it'll show you like, oh, you're about to share 47,000 photos, even though it doesn't really mean you're sharing them. It's just yeah. like opening they have access. access to them. Yeah. So anyways, there is a thing called LTP, Link Tracking Protection. Any idea what this is? Yes. Um, this I think this is going to screw Facebook again. Okay. But I'm not sure. Or is it just like, oh, it eliminates UTM parameters. Is yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. So that's exactly what it does. <laughs> is, but it's, <laughs> it's mainly in, uh, in mail, messages, and Safari. So if you click links in Safari, which I think this is going to completely fuck affiliates. That was my first thought is affiliates can be completely screwed here, especially affiliates that send via email. You imagine sending an offer to a supplement or yeah. a skincare product. Yeah. To 100,000 people. The guy clicks the link and the UTM parameters from the link. Gone. Gone. Okay. So that's basically the update is that they're getting rid of that. Aren't they keeping like one UTM parameter? Aren't they letting you stick with state law? I didn't see that. That's what I thought as well. I couldn't find that. That might be true. Okay. Uh, Some people have done some early testing and found that when people, so again, it's mainly mail and, and iMessage. When links were sent, a Facebook link, Google ad link, and a HubSpot tracking link were sent, they were removed. However, the parameters were not removed in the beta version of iOS 17 for a Klaviyo link, a TikTok click ID link, and a MailChimp link. So it could just be that it's the beta and like the final version will be out, which is my guess. But I started to think, okay, how do you fix this? So I'm sorry, before we talk about how to fix it, so yes, this messes up affiliates, this messes up us when it comes to emails because we're like, yeah definitely sms yeah gone yeah sms you're like okay i can't understand tracking right utm parameters are gone email i can't understand how many transactions this got because utm parameters are gone and i right. imagine that's how clavio does its own uh data mm-hmm. are there any cookies involved when you click a link in an email and get to your site like is there any cookie that like can save people here or is that also eliminated 
technically you could, like you could click a link, it goes to a blank page that fires your pixel and then immediately redirects to whatever the other link is. So I think that's one way to fix it. Uh, but I think redirects is basically the way to fix it. So for example, when you send a text, it would be, you know, Haven Athletics slash SMS Saturday one. And when that gets clicked, it gets clicked. There's no parameters at the end of that. But in Safari, then it'll redirect and itself. Correct. Although shit, I wonder if in Safari, if that would still cut it because it's like technically a redirect. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's crazy how much, how little information there is until this stuff comes out. Like, I'm yeah. surprised Shopify doesn't announce, here's the update, or Facebook, or Clavio. Yeah. The updates that you need to worry about for iOS 17. Yeah. Uh, so that's a little bit surprising. One way this could actually work is uh, if there is a plugin or a tool in Shopify that helped you duplicate product pages or any page you're trying to send traffic to, you could isolate traffic and conversions to every as a last page. click way. So, but it, so yeah. you wouldn't get like the overall halo from it. Like you wouldn't get the unattributed non-last click tracking. So basically you have 40 UTM parameters across your 40 Facebook ads. And so you have to have 40 PDPs. So you, yeah. everyone knows, like each ad goes to a separate PDP. Exactly. Yeah. Which in theory works, but that also causes sites to just break so fast. Well, yeah. Because also if you're updating a product, now you have to update yeah. the PDP everywhere. But if there was like a parent PDP that Shopify created, right. you could break it into 40 children PDPs. Yeah. Make changes there. That could work. That's interesting. I thought that there was like you one UTM parameter would be alive. Yeah. That's what I had thought. That's what I, I thought, thought I, I read heard before. Time. Yeah. But I, I was trying to find that again, and I couldn't find it. So I don't know if they changed that or... UTM parameters are really dangerous because, like, you know, I can run a Facebook ad and I can see you click this Facebook ad. Yeah. I know exactly who you are, what you did, like, you know, what gets you excited. And so I understand where Apple's coming from from this more than I understand from Facebook, like iOS 14.5. Mm -hmm. But it does seem like they're making e-commerce harder and harder at every turn that they can. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder how Clavio gets around this because Clavio is not good. Like, you can't have, well, I guess you could have one PDP for cl a Clavio email, but yeah. every flow would have a separate PDP then. Uh, like, every flow email would be uh, like, yeah. And think about if you've got like a big store and you've got like, you know, 20 products or like, you know, not even 20 products, 100 products. If yeah, 2000. Apparel uh, company, right? You'd now have to. Have, I guess you, you'd have, like, every flow would have different SKUs and you'd have to have different PDPs. Like, I mean, it would get so unwieldy so fast. Yeah, I think it'll bring back two things. Well, not bring back, it'll get two things going. One is the use of coupon codes. I think any brands that think they're not discount brands are going to have to start using it for attribution. And I think, secondly, it'll lead to a lot more lead gen within e-com. A lot of landing pages where you enter your email and get a discount specific to you versus you know, like automatic code applied. The hard part is that like, even if there's coupon codes, okay, I sent out an email and that coupon code makes sense. Facebook ads, you know, you're running 400, 500 Facebook ads at any given time. Yeah. You've got 400, 500 coupon. Every time you create an ad, you've got to create a new coupon code. And the way you- I'm even thinking like yeah. you get to the landing page. Yeah. You're about to purchase. You enter your email for a code. You get a, a unique code sent to you and then use that. And how does that help you understand what Facebook ad is the uh, one that worked well? It wouldn't solve the Facebook. It might solve like email and SMS. Yeah. yeah Facebook is still going to be tough. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, 80% yeah. care about. Because like, I'm going to send out that email, whether I have the attribution or not, I don't care. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's going to earn me revenue. I know it earns me revenue. 
and it cost me very little. Yeah. SMS, I think both of those are true, but less true because it costs more money. Right. Facebook is where I'm like, look, I just spent $10,000. I need to understand yeah. which one of these ads worked. I'm running- It's like, did it work? Yes. Yeah. Which one worked? Yeah. Like, yes. which one am I supposed to scale? <laughs> and that is really scary. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Any other changes that are happening on iOS 17? Um, or big I'm ones sure, you're talking about? Yeah, I don't think related to e-commerce or, or yeah. this stuff, but that was the one that I'm not excited about. Yeah, one thing that happened when iOS 14.5 came out, everyone was like, okay, it came out in like July or August at one point, and everyone was like, oh no, this is going to be the end of the world. And for three months, it wasn't the end of the world, and everyone was like, okay, maybe it's perfectly fine. And what I found out later on was that Apple didn't push or force you to update to iOS 14.5. It didn't update you automatically just when you plugged in your yeah. phone at night. It did that when you got to like iOS 14.9 or something. Yeah. And so actually iOS 14.5, only like 20% of people had downloaded it by October, November. Then they updated it again. And basically you didn't even know you were going to get an update. You just plugged in your phone and went to bed and Apple automatically updates your iPhone now. That one they pushed and sort of forced on everyone. Yeah. And so iOS 14.5 changes hap ultimately happened in like October and November of, I think it was 2021 now. I guess when iOS 17 launches, people might be like, oh, I guess there's not, it's not so bad. It could get worse. Yeah, yeah. It Give it a month. Yeah, it, it's Jimmy just a will come. force people to download or not. Yeah, exactly. Okay, let's switch to something I've got, um, yeah. which is Amazon. I read this crazy thing about Amazon, but before uh, I get there, I want to I, I want to ask this question. I want to ask this question of viewers as well, because we didn't do a guess this business, so I yeah. like to ask questions. What percentage of Amazon sales do you think are Amazon's own brands? Fifteen to eighteen percent. Amazon says it's one percent of their sales is Amazon. Wow, sales. is Amazon branded products? or like Amazon-owned private label brands, wow. of which they're shutting down most of them now. Yeah. They're, like there's some FTC thing. They're keeping like Amazon basics. So you can bet, you know, they're still going to be selling batteries. Sure. But I think they're going to stop selling their clone version of Allbirds, basically. Wow. But okay, that's the one thing I, I wanted to mention that about Amazon. But Amazon has recently been trying to push people to develop packaging so that when you when it ships out your stuff, your stuff doesn't need to go inside another box. They can just slap a label on your box and ship it out. I've been getting more packages like that. They say, okay, here's another question then. I'm glad you asked that. Yeah. What percentage of items that the company delivers now arrive without extra packaging? This is what Amazon calls ships in its own container. What percentage of packages do you think they ship out right now that don't require an Amazon box? 5%? 11%. Oh, wow. Uh, but that's pretty close. What do you think the pros and cons are to having um, an Amazon box and not an Amazon box? I mean, from a consumer standpoint, I would imagine better Amazon branding, of course. Um, but get the Amazon box. Yeah, it's yeah. also just always a clean box. Yeah. Easy to open and, you know, you can fit multiple things in there. Yeah. If you're ordering multiple items in a package, right. you need another box. Exactly. And then single box is, you know, usually it's actually a, a flimsy box. They're usually not good boxes. So products probably get destroyed more. And um, yeah, it's just... You don't get an Amazon package. So there's a couple reasons that they're trying to do this. One is like, look, everyone has a bunch of photos that they've taken or thought when they're throwing out a bunch. Like, uh, I'm just, I'm doing a little bit of moving right now. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting so many boxes from Amazon. So much trash, so much Amazon trash I've got. So like, it's better for the environment. Like, right. There's fewer boxes. It's also good for a cost perspective, right? Because now Amazon, theoretically, Amazon isn't like uh, adding a box to mm -hmm. your box. And as a result... 
maybe they can lower their prices somehow or lower the percentage that they charge the sellers. Uh, they talked about this and they said that there was one guy who sold screwdrivers, okay? And uh, they helped them design a package so that they could just slap a label on it. And the tough part was with like screwdrivers, you got to be really careful about these packages because mm -hmm. the screwdriver ends up, it's not a weapon, but like, you know, it's a very sharp object. If your yeah. packaging isn't tough, that screwdriver is going to get through and going to hurt somebody. So they said that for 100,000 screwdriver packages that are shipped across 12 months for this one seller, the savings tied to this would be about $34,000. Wow. Just by skipping the outer box? That's right. And doing their own custom packaging. Like it could be more than just the outer box. It could be like, you know, cost savings from sh cheaper shipping as well because they made it smaller or something. Wow. But they said for 100,000 uh, screwdriver packages shipped across a year, it'd be $34,000. Wow. I think this is a great idea. I love, you know, better for the environment, certainly cheaper. I think the other cons of this are that you might have a lot more stolen packages. Like if they deliver yeah. an Apple iPhone on your doorstep without a package, I'm going to steal that. Oh, iPhone. I'm definitely. I'm going that. over there and be like, oh, there's a thousand dollars right here. This <laughs> yeah. is Nick Sharma's. He's got enough money. Let me take this. <laughs> the other thing I'm going to get embarrassed, uh, there's a little bit of embarrassment. Like if they, imagine they slap a label to a big pack of toilet paper that you just got delivered. Yeah. I'd be like, Nick Sharma, that Indian guy is eating so much curry. He needs this family size <laughs> roll of toilet paper. Jesus Christ. <sighs> and then I think the experience. Like, I think the interesting part is that Amazon is sort of shifting the experience onto uh, the, the sellers. Yeah. Exactly. Like, now you come up with an unboxing experience through Amazon because your package is going to get delivered through us and make it as beautiful and as special as you know, you would do through your own direct-to-consumer site. Are the sellers getting anything monetarily out of that? Or it's just like, hey, buddy, we're going to save 30 cents on the box. And we're keeping and it all. We're keeping it. Yeah, that's so, uh, I'm not sure about that. There's this great book. If you haven't read it, you should read it. It's called The Walmart Effect. Okay. We learned about it in law. Uh, we had this one amazing professor. I had many amazing professors in law school. One really special one. He talked to me about the book and I ended up reading it. And he's like, a long time ago, Walmart was, you know, Walmart is the number one seller of deodorants in the country. Yeah. And in, this is pre-native, you know, I was reading this book in 2008. Um, he's like, uh, Walmart told all of their suppliers, look, if you, deodorants used to come in boxes, they would have the deodorant of like, you know, the plastic component in a box. Mm -hmm. And Walmart said to their suppliers, mainly to P&G and Unilever and said, if you put your deodorant in a box, we're no longer going to carry it. Hmm. You stop doing that. And so P&G and Unilever, who sell a ton of deodorants, were like, we're going to stop doing this. And Walmart saved five cents. Like Walmart was like, look, this is going to save on shipping because you're not shipping boxes. This is going to save on space because you're not shipping boxes. And this is going to save on cost because you're not shipping boxes. And so they're like, we demand a five cent price decrease. Huh. And they got that five cent price decrease and they gave two pennies or they kept two pennies and gave three to the consumer. And so they brought down their prices for deodorants by three pennies by saying, get rid of this box. Wow. Is Amazon going to do that? Definitely. Incredibly unclear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Incredibly unclear. But um, I thought it was really interesting that they were trying to do this. Yeah. I think it's good in that like it'll force, like uh, Brita has started creating a, um, an unboxing experience specifically for this like slap a label on it. Like basically they've created a box that if you buy that box, Amazon can just slap a label and the unboxing experience will be really wonderful. Huh. I do think that some of the costs get shifted to the seller, not only because of the unboxing experience, but also because, you know, Brita filters come in really cheap. Yeah, you got to get a thicker box. Yeah, you got to get much better corrugate in right. and you got to pay for much better corrugate now. Totally. So I think a lot of this costs are now shifted to the seller 
whether Amazon keeps, whether Amazon is thinking of this as a margin play, I've got no idea. Yeah. Or whether they're like, look, we're going to give this margin back to the consumer because you're not eating the cost of the box. I'm not sure, but I thought that was really interesting. The other thing I read was that Amazon has doubled their warehouse network during COVID. One of the reasons that they're able to do this is they're like, there's a lot less distance between our fulfillment center and the consumer. Right. We've dropped that distance 15% in the last two years by doubling our warehouse network. And we've decreased the number of touches of a box by 12%, which is, I thought, wow. interesting. they're just like, like, they're like, look, we don't want to touch a box and we don't want to have to take it very far to drop this package off. Uh, and so they've done a good job of that. They're like, we've doubled our footprint. And as a result, we can do this box thing, which is trying to save everyone money, or at least trying to save money. Weren't they closing down a bunch too? Yeah, I think they were like more than doubling it. And now yeah. like pulling back a little bit because they're like, okay, e-commerce isn't the same as it was in 2020 anymore. Yeah, yeah. The folks over at Tatari shared some interesting stats with me. Over the past three years, brands that were running TV ads on Black Friday, Cyber Monday saw a 50% boost in conversion rates compared to a typical week during the year. That's wild. Fabletics was one of those clients and their CAC dropped by 70%. They had 110,000 incremental site visitors and branded search increased by 25%. So if you want to supercharge your holiday campaigns this year, you should try TV ads and the best platform to use is Tatari. Check out their three-minute demo video and other case studies at tatari.tv slash limited supply. We should go into your fashion topic. Great. Okay. Uh, my fashion topic, um, there was this, while we were uh, between season four and season five, there was this great article, I thought, on Allbirds. And this this will parlay into that other brand that we talked about right when we got here, which is, so Allbirds is, you know, a shoe company. I, like, I think if you were in e-commerce in 2017, you definitely knew e- uh, Allbirds. Allbirds, yeah. If you started an e-commerce in 2022, I'm not sure you know what Allbirds is any longer. Except just a failing stock. Yeah, uh, the stock is down by 90. The the way they started was on Kickstarter. They raised $120,000 with Kickstarter. And what they did is they created these wool shoes. And uh, then they, uh, after raising this money and making the shoes, they started, like they opened up their, like they were based in San Francisco. They started sending these shoes to everyone in Silicon Valley. If you were the CEO of Sir Kensington's, if you were a partner at Sequoia or Andreessen Horowitz or Mavron, they're like, hey, wear these shoes. And then all of a sudden, you know, people would be like walking around being like, what are these shoes? Oh, the CEO of my business wears them. Maybe I should wear them too. Mm-hmm. I thought that was uh, really interesting. I think Patagonia did something similar where they're like, we're going to give discounts to like executives at Facebook and at VC funds. And then other people are going to wear them. Um, in 2018, Albert set up shop inside the original Shake Shack in New York City for one day to sell limited edition sneakers. And the line was around wow. the block. Like they had this cult following. Yeah. Then what happened, and like this is what I find it really interesting, is like they tried to come out with many new products, right? Mm-hmm. They're like, look, shoes are great. We need to be in a, like, I think at some point they must have had a discussion and been like, are we a shoe company? Or is this going to be Nike or is this going to be Lululemon? Are we an athleisure company? And I think they chose the second one. Yeah. In, so in this article in the Wall Street Journal said in 2021, they came out with wool leggings and uh, a model tried them on. And walked in front of every like they had an all hands meeting and walked in front of everyone at the uh, at their HQ, and employees noticed that the leggings, the wool leggings, were see through. And one employee said, "I can see your underwear through them." <laughs> Literally, a case of the principal has no clothes or the king has no clothes. Yeah. And by then, Alberts has already ordered tens of thousands of pairs. Yikes! And I think like one of the interesting parts of this is, it's really difficult for brands to launch 
second products or third products or tertiary products was yeah. kind of su- was success with the product. I think that was true uh, with a bunch of brands. So let me talk about those brands. Native, we launched deodorants really well. We had at least a tough time in it. Like our second product was bar soap and it was no good. Yeah. And then it was body wash and then toothpaste. Like, you know, it took us a while to find our footing with second products. Magic Spoon, cereal, amazing. They launched like Pop-Tarts or something. I don't know how they're doing, but I don't- Cereal bars. Cereal bars, that's yeah. right, yeah. Manscaped has a, a, you know, trimmer. Yeah. I don't know a brand that launched a product, launched a second product, and that second product is 40%, 30, 40, 50% of sales. Yeah. Everyone's not a one-hit wonder, but like- Yeah, they'll find like 10%. Exactly, 12%. yeah. Yeah. Even like Stan Socks. Yeah. You know, I'm not like, you know, I've seen Stan Socks. I'm not wearing Stan shirts, Stan right. hats, movement washes. I'm not like, oh, you know what I see a lot of? Movement socks, movement hats, movement sunglasses, like, you know- right. I know they exist. Movement sunglasses certainly do, but I don't see a ton of them. Totally. Why is that? Why can no one have two hits? Personally, as a consumer, I will try to find a brand that's good at making one thing that I enjoy from it, but I don't expect it. There's some brands like, you know, if, if uh, like if Hexclad came out with uh, something new in the kitchen, I would trust that the quality that I loved about the pans carries over there. And I would probably try that. But when it comes to things like apparel or personal care or beauty, I think people very much try to find one product that works and they don't really care about the brand that much. They like that the product works and it it does whatever. It makes them look younger, feel younger. Their skin's tighter. Yeah. The shirt fits really well. Yeah. But like if the shirt fits really well, it doesn't mean that their pants it's- are going to fit well or like that they have the best running shoes either. I think that's interesting that you say that. I think it, that's true. Uh, like, if anybody has proven that that, that is the, uh, the thesis is Procter & Gamble. Yeah. You don't see Tide making household cleaning products. They're like, right. this is laundry, de- this is fabric, they call it fabric, laundry detergent only, right? They're like, Tide makes laundry detergent. It don't, yeah. Why doesn't it make a cleaner for your floor? Right. Or your dishes. They make Tide pods. Why do- They have another brand called Cascade to right. clean your dishes. Why are those two separate brands? Why is Secret not making toothpaste and why is Crest not making shampoo? And I think that they're of the belief that no, very few brands can cross categories. Yeah, I fully agree. I think P&G probably does it best. Yeah. Like very much, uh, it's, it's not that it's a single product, but it's a single focus. So I'm not sure what came first, the chicken or the egg here. P&G has siloed itself into like different divisions. There's like a fabric care division and there's a personal care division. And like, so, you know, personal care division, the CEO of the personal care division doesn't make money if the fabric care division makes money. The fabric care division guy, I mean, they own P&G stock, but they don't make money if the uh, personal right. care business does better. Right. So Tide isn't going to launch a deodorant anytime soon, and Old Spice isn't going to launch a uh, laundry detergent anytime soon. Right. And when Native, uh, you know, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it <laughs> When Native came out with toothpaste, we had to go all the way to the CEO of P&G to be like, hey, we want to launch toothpaste because it was a different division. And no one crosses divisions here. Wow. And so this happened way above my pay grade. But at some somebody had a conversation, which it was, you know, when this brand sells uh, toothpaste, who gets the benefit? The person who runs personal care and bought Native or the person who runs oral care and owns Crest and toothpaste? Right. And I don't know what the answer to that was. And I was also like, this is going to be a, like uh, a million dollar, like this is nothing. You run Crest. This is how much Crest is lost on the truck yeah. on the way to Target every day. Uh, so I don't know why you're uh, like, but uh, you know that was that had to go to the CEO because nothing crosses divisions. There. Yeah, 
I think you're right. Like it's very hard for a brand to cross categories and make more than one hit. Like Athletic Greens still doesn't have yeah, why wonder powders, right? right? Yeah. But I also think their brand strategy is the fact that you don't need anything else. It's just the one product. But don't you need something else if you're pregnant? Don't you need something yeah, else that's if true. you're 65 or older? Don't sure. you need something else if you're um, you know, going through menopause or puberty or eight? Yeah. Uh, like It really does require a complete like different brand strategy, brand identity, tone of... I mean, everything from a brand standpoint almost has to be different. Yes. Yeah, you're right. They like even that. ritual, right? I wonder how successful the other lines of ritual are outside of the first product they launched. Yeah. Uh, Probably great not. question. I have no idea. And I think it is and like, that's almost like supplements. And like, I would expect supplements to always sort of branch out like Ollie or whatever yeah. it is. But Athletic Greens has not launched any other product. And I do think that there is a little bit of genius in that. When we were going to sell our business, it made it a lot easier. Like Hint, yeah, Hint Water had a deodorant. And I was I, I remember talking to Kara and thinking, Look, Hint Water is amazing, and the brand you've built is amazing, but who's going to purchase this, Coca-Cola yeah. or Procter & Gamble? Right. And generally, they're not going after the same business. Right. And when you're a one-hit wonder, or like not a one-hit wonder, but have one product, you can go into a lot more conversations about M&A, and no one's like, oh, no, there's all this baggage that I've got to deal with. Like, right. Oh, I've it's also the opportunity of what they can expand. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. The yeah. brand. When we, were go- when we were selling the business, when we went to Unilever, we're like, look- you're based in Europe and you're really good at selling in Europe. We haven't touched Europe. Wouldn't this be a great product for Europe? Yeah. When we went to P&G, we're like, look, we don't know anything about brick and mortar stores. Do you guys know anything about brick and mortar stores? Because if so, this is going to be a great product there. And so um, it allowed us to be a lot more flexible when it came to our uh, acquisition strategy. And I think that being a one-hit wonder, it's sort of like you get to be this diamond and anybody can fit it into any ring that they want. Yeah. And if you've already set that ring in there, you've already cut it and polished it, they're like, okay, this is the side, this is the only diamond that's going to fit. Right. So I thought that was really interesting, particularly with Allbirds, that this happened to them and thinking about second products, the brand has suffered a lot. In 2022, they did $300 million in revenue. They lost $100 million. In their IPO, they had co-CEOs. They didn't uh, sell any uh, stock. They have a lot of unsold inventory. In 2022, they took $13 million right down on unsold inventory. And and then this year, they hired BCG, and BCG was like, go back to your fundamentals. Fewer store openings, more direct-to-consumer. Why didn't they hire us? Shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That does seem like a very simple thing. They paid $200,000 to hear that. Yeah, that's right. But look, you know, I've been thinking about other apparel brands that have had a tough time and a couple of these I've heard from the Rumorville. Yeah. And I'm going to mention their names, although, uh, you know, this is dangerous, but I think it'll be okay because it's come out in a few weeks. Yeah. Uh, one is Parade. I know they're having a tough time. One is Outdoor Voices. I yeah. don't know if they're having a tough time or what's going on, uh, but both I've heard from multiple sources. I wouldn't have said anything unless I'd heard this from multiple sources. And nobody told me this in like confidence in terms of me saying, being like, hey, boys, you can't talk about this. No one said, hey, boys, you're an investor. Would you be interested in investing in this? Right. In that context. I heard this from other contexts, which is you have a podcast, you should talk about this stuff. And so these apparel brands have had a tough time. There's a new brand called Sporty and Rich. Mm -hmm. Have you heard of this brand? Oh, yeah. What do you know about it? It's uh, so this girl, Emily Oberg, a huge um, complex host back in probably like, Eight years ago, maybe seven, six, five years ago, she would always have the best interviews for complex media. And then, did you watch them seven or eight years ago? Yeah, she was a great host. 
I think she like made and probably led to some extent Complex's growth in video. Wow. And she would do these like, she would even host workouts with like artists or rappers or whatever. They were all, it was always just good content. It was like innovative content. And then she she left and I think started creative directing as a freelancer, maybe for Kith and then maybe a couple other cool spots. Yeah. And then she started launching her own brand, Sporty and Rich. And I believe she's also launching a physical like social club or something like that, or might be a part of launching one. Yeah. Uh, but I know, I think she's got a store in Soho that's either open or about to be open. And I forget who I was talking to. Somebody I know knows her super well and said her brand is on fire, completely bootstrapped and on fire. How much revenue do you think on fire means? They do have a spa. Wow. Okay. I this think is- it's like mid mid to late eight figures, something like that. So there was an article about him recently in the New York Times, and they said they were anticipating doing 28 to $32 million yeah. this year. That's amazing. Uh, which is crazy. They do have a spa and a store which is also a little bananas. Yeah. It was a really interesting article. I'd never heard of the brand. I started seeing like, like you know, um, what are those things called where like people just oh, put up- bills? Yeah, yeah, bills. Yeah, yeah. On like, poster bills. Yeah, exactly. On like construction sites in New York City. And I was like, is this a good name? Because I'm not sure people want to be wear clothes that say rich. Yeah. I guess I, I'm very wrong. Do you remember that iPhone app? The thousand dollar oh, iPhone yeah. app? I, says, rich. I am rich. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love that. I, that guy is a genius. <laughs> yeah. Give people context in case they don't know what it is. Yeah, it was like, a, this was back, I think, when the app store started. It was just an iPhone app. Every, mostly everything was free. And this was an iPhone app for $999.99. Which is the max an app could be. Yeah. And it, it just you just open it, and I think it just said, I am rich. Yeah, it was just like a red light, and it said, I am rich. And I think they had like five sales. Yeah. And um, then they got shut. Like the Wall Street Journal wrote an article in the New York Times. Somebody wrote an article about them. And then Apple like pulled the app. Yeah. But I was like, this is a great app. The guy did nothing, but he charges a thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars and EBITDA. It's basically, <laughs> that's right, yeah. it's basically Louis Vuitton for your iPhone. Yeah. Anyway, this brand is doing 28 to 32 million. It was a really interesting article. Apparently, like she started this business with a guy. Is like she flew to Paris and uh this guy and her were gonna start the business or were thinking about starting the business. And the first day they met each other in Paris, they fell in love with each other. Wow. And they said, like in this article, they're like, they said, I love you on the first day that they met in Paris. And um, they started selling the brand. And the guy who lives in Paris is like, holy shit, you have a real following. She started this Instagram uh, handle called Sporty and Rich a long time ago. You have a real following. There's a wait list of people who want to buy your products. You go build a brand. I will build a business. And that's what they did. Like, they're not together anymore, I think. I'm not sure. I'm not entirely sure I have this all right. But they're not together anymore. And, uh, you know, th- like she's built like, you know, there's a real brand doing a lot of revenue. Wow. What do you think happened? I think it's bootstrapped. I think it's bootstrapped as well. Yeah. What do you think happened? The the guy, I think most of the operations are based in Paris. And the guy has, I think I read that they had 25 employees um, at the time of the writing of this New York Times article. What happens to this brand 10 years from now? Is this a brand 10 years from now or is this dead 10 years from now? I feel like it has a very good chance of being a brand that ends up in a fashion house, like holding company, or gets traded around multiple times. I think it has potential to be up there with like a Versace or a Jimmy Choo or something like that. Wow. I don't know enough about the brand uh, to pine, but like, I think it's really difficult for brands like this to live for 10 Like you need such, 
you know, how many brands have existed for 10 years in the clothing space that are still doing well? I think, like, yeah, but I also think like, for example, if Outdoor Voices grew slower, I think they would have lasted 10 years. You know? Outdoor Voices grew slower. Like Outdoor Voices almost got so much cash and then had to return the cash and then basically blew all their cash. And they just kind of like destroyed the brand in the process of doing that. Uh, yeah, I do think that Outdoor Voices could have lasted longer. But I think here's two things. One, I don't think it was a cash issue. I think it was a management issue. And I think Ty said that where she's like, yeah. you know, it's me and Mickey and the uh, VC board all fighting and all pulling in different directions. And that was like leading to an implosion of the business. But like, could Outdoor Voices last with Viore and 400 other companies launched in this? Yeah, there are so many. You know, like, is Viore 10 years from now, is Viore going to be Lululemon? Like, even Lululemon, I feel like, it, it, you know, when it was the only guy in town that had its heyday, does, yeah. does it still... Is Lululemon as powerful today as it was five years ago, six years ago? Yeah, I think good no. question. And so I think very few of these brands last ten years. Yeah. And so if I were running a brand like this, I might be like, let me draw as much water from this well as I can while it's here. I don't yeah. know what happens ten years from now. I don't know anybody who's built a brand where I'm like, ten years from now, this is going to be an insane brand. Like, I don't think Outdoor Voices could have been uh, the next Lululemon with four hundred other competitors coming out. I do think one thing sporty and rich has going for them is it is similar to like the older you know like a kate spade or um like where it's 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 a very close tie to whoever the person is making the clothes or designing the clothes they have that with sporty and rich where i feel like a lot of the other brands in the athleisure space don't so like kate spade yeah designed by kate spade yes jimmy choo designed by jimmy choo sporty and rich and emily are very closely tied to each other Whereas, a, like an outdoor, you know, you have no idea who's designing outdoor voices or Lululemon yeah. or Viore. That's true. But I think that, like, um, I don't expect the designer to be the designer for more than a hot sec. Like, when I bought, like, you know, I've never bought Coco Chanel, but I yeah. guess Coco Chanel's dead. And I'm like, Coco <laughs> Chanel designed this, you know? Yeah. Gucci has a new designer, I believe, every few years. Yeah. I don't think Jimmy Choo is the guy who's designing uh, the shoes any longer. And I, right. think Kate, I think Kate Spade is all, I'm not sure if she's passed away. She's passed away, yeah. I think it's nice that there is that separation though. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how these brands last 10 years. I hope they do. I love seeing these types of brands exist. Yeah. Uh, look, and I love to- What do you think- uh, I love them. But. What do you think makes, or what, what characteristics do you think the brands have that have the power to be bought and sold constantly? Like uh, Juicy Couture, Quicksilver. Yeah. Like these are brands that, you know, very mediocre products yeah. when they're out, but like they have the power. I mean, they'll be traded trade. for the next hundred years. Well, uh, let me answer that question second, but let me answer this other question first, which is, I think Allbirds is a good example of like how hard it is for a founder who started a young, small business to grow into running a massive business. Yeah. You know, I, I think those are incredibly difficult skill sets. And I think the founders of Allbirds have, you know, navigated that really well. Do you think if Allbirds sold to private equity earlier and a different executive team and different strategy was put in, it would be in a different spot? Yes. Much better spot. Yeah. And like, um, where do you think that sweet spot is? I don't know where it is, but I think the native would not be what it is today if P&G hadn't purchased it. Like yeah. I couldn't have done this. Yeah. I don't think I could have done this. Yeah. And I think maybe next time I could, because I saw us grow beyond uh, like my abilities. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is this how you do, how you do it. it. Yeah. And so I do think that there is that like point where brands should bring in outside talent that is going to be additive, that is 
either strategic or intelligent or, you know, just more experienced. Yeah. And I think like a true classic did a really good job of this. Like, yeah. you know, they brought in Ben really early on. Ben's a genius. And I was like, look, these guys recognize that they had a hole in this type of marketing space and they brought in an executive for this. Right. I think bringing in a shoe executive could be helpful. I, I don't know what it would be like for Allbirds today. Yeah. I think it might be too late, unfortunately. Like, I think that the brand is like lost its cachet. Yeah. Uh, but let me go back to the, uh, so so I think, yes, I think that sold to private equity or sold earlier, it could have had a different outcome. Going back to your question, which is why can Juicy Couture still get traded a hundred times? Uh, two reasons. One, it's like Crocs. It has, it's going to have some sales. It's going to have some brick and mortar distribution forever for mm-hmm. some reason. Like, you know, it just has. And by the way, I think Native's in this category too. I think Native will get bought and sold for the next hundred years. P&G doesn't really like, maybe it will. I don't or know. Or it'll at least sell. exist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think it'll exist as well. Yeah. It's found a home where, like, I mean, it's a large brand. I think it'll do about $500 million this year. Wow. And, you know, like, there's, it's a real brand with real income. Right. For a, a company that like cares about real brands and real income. But I think like the juicy couture's of the world, I think they get bought and sold for two reasons. One is uh they're always they always have some brick and mortar presence that generates some sales. So it's almost like buying an annuity. Buy juicy couture for a bill, I don't know what the prices are or how much revenue is. Buy it for a billion dollars. Every year it'll earn you $80 million. Are you okay with those numbers? Get the, if the economy gets better, maybe it'll earn you 120. Yeah. The economy gets worse, maybe it'll earn you 40 or 60. Are you okay with that type of risk? It's almost like buying a bond or a CD or putting your money in a savings account. Right. So I think that's part of it. And I think another part of it is somebody is like, I can revive this brand. Like, yeah. I think the one brand I could revive was be like Reebok. I'd be like, or starter jackets. Give me yeah. starter jackets. You know, that brand that we were all, like, I don't know if you're too young for this, but starter jackets were huge when I was a kid. Yeah. They were super expensive. Everyone wanted one. We, I never had one. There were fakes. People, I, I think people were killed for their starter jacket. Wow. I almost killed the guy for his starter jacket. <laughs> uh, but like, there are some brands that can be revived like that. Like, you know who's doing a good job of this right now? Wilson, the tennis company. Yeah. Now there's this tennis, whatever is going on. They, they've created beautiful clothes now. Mm-hmm. I thought they were just tennis balls. They're like, here's this tennis racket. That's, I think they have a store in Soho now. Yeah, they well. do. Like they've revived that brand. And I think there are opportunities to revive brands like that. And I think that's part of the reason those brands are traded. But I think part of it is also their annuities because they're in brick and mortar stores and you'll always get that annuity from them. Yeah. This leads into, uh, did you see the Tapestry acquisition? Yes. So Tapestry bought uh, Capri, which owns... Michael Kors, Jimmy Choo, and Versace for $8.5 billion. And I think the tapestry market cap is $9.5 billion. So they basically got a bunch of debt, bought this thing all cash. Yeah. And I also thought the revenue split was interesting. So Michael Kors does close to $4 billion in revenue. Versace does $1 billion, and Jimmy Choo is only $600 million. Michael um, Kors does $4 billion. In- yeah, isn't that crazy? Yeah. Wow. Um, See, this is what I, uh, I would like, people aspire to wear Jimmy shoes. Jimmy, well, how do you pronounce Chu? Jimmy Choo, yeah. Jimmy Choo, people aspire to wear that and probably be the CEO of that. I aspire to be Michael Kors. 100%. You know, look at that. Look at that, yeah. Kind of mediocre, like upscale, like, you know, it's like upscale middle class. Yeah, exactly. They call it like near lux. Uh, not lux, but Prestige, like near yeah, lux. Nastige or something. Yeah, yeah. but they- um. You know, there's like right now it's in the phase of, I mean, we're recording this August 12th. So acquisition wise, it's basically an Excel sheet analysis. It's not like they haven't really gone into why they bought it. But some of the things they mentioned was uh, Capri has a much higher penetration in Europe, 
while tapestry has a much higher penetration in Asia. So they'll be able to cross sell much better and cross distribute. Wow. Um, they'll be able to broaden their product offering because Capri has much higher penetration in footwear and apparel. Also, tapestry is way better and stronger in D2C and e-commerce, which they'll get to take advantage of. That's awesome. A lot of people compare it to LVMH, which I think is still just you know four or five X away from uh, these two companies combining. But the other thing was like with the acquisition, a lot of these fashion houses, they license their name. Like when Tom Ford does uh, perfume, they license it to Estee Lauder sure. and they just get paid a licensing fee. And I feel like this would, because their their categories are so different, they'll actually get a lot of supply chain advantages and probably savings instead of just licensing, they'll get a lot more of that margin. That's interesting that you say that. At Native, there was no synergies. Like we never moved production at P&G. We weren't Buffett. Like, you don't remember when we had Keith on the, yeah. I don't know what season that was anymore. Yeah, I don't know. And I was like, you're buying all of these e-commerce businesses. What synergies are you seeing? Because I, I remember I asked him a loaded question because I was like, Warren Buffett, you know, Warren Buffett owns a lot of businesses, right? He owns, I think he owns like NetJets, which is airplanes. He owns uh, Burlington Northern, which is a railroad. Yeah. He owns Nebraska Furniture Mart. And people are like, what synergies do you see across these businesses? And he's like, there are none. He's like, uh, nobody's ever bought a business and found a synergy. It's very hard to run. No one CEO can run three, two businesses. Yeah. No one CFO can run two businesses. Are there cost savings when you're buying QuickBooks when you have two businesses? You know, when you if you have three businesses, you pay Clavio three different bills right now. It's right. not like Clavio is like, oh, you have three businesses, let's give you a discount. Yeah. No. And so I'm not sure if there are synergies to be had. And like to be honest, I'm not sure if like Coach and Kate Spade, they're like, you know what we need to do is reduce costs. Yeah. Like, you know, the item that they cost them five dollars to sell, they sell for four hundred dollars. If they sell for if they buy for four dollars, that's not a big deal. Right. It's can they sell for six hundred dollars? Right. But maybe there are. I don't know. I, everyone uh, talks about synergies. Yeah. And I think no one ever finds them. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a fair point. Um, but it is going to be interesting, though, to see what happens to Versace. I feel like that's kind of like one of those brands where it's a sleeper brand and could probably get blown up more. Yeah, that's right. It reminds me of like, um, you know, Starter. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. Reebok. Yeah. Or, and that's actually what happened to Gucci. Like Gucci was hot for a while and I'm not sure if it still is. But, you know, someone brought it back like they got this new designer and like, 2015 or 2014 yeah like, you know then everyone was wearing that gucci belt with the two g's on it yeah and now i don't think i think it's like illegal to wear it yeah uh so i'm not <laughs> sure what's going on there but that's yeah. it's a pretty big acquisition for an american huge acquisition eight and a half billion in cash yeah i wonder so the other thing it had me thinking about was um this is like two massive american fashion houses coming together i think this is probably the biggest acquisition in american fashion history maybe but then it got me thinking, I wonder if the government's involved, like, because then it's basically tapestry is now maybe the biggest in the U.S. compared to like LVMH in Europe. And LVMH sells a ton of product here. I don't think tapestry combined will sell a ton of product in Europe, yeah. you know, comparatively. Yeah. And so I wonder if it's almost like playing chess, like it's a higher level of chess. It's not just let's just get revenue and synergies. I'm sure that's the case. I don't think anyone would be like, this is just synergies. We're going to save costs here. Yeah. That's a terrible idea for an acquisition. There has to be a belief that you can do something amazing with it. Um, and LVMH have done such a good job of buying brand. Like LVMH bought Tiffany's. Like, you know, yeah. they're just they're like, also so diversified. Like yeah. even this, right? This is just clothing. Yeah. Yeah. They've got Belvedere yeah. and Dom Perignon. Yeah. And I feel like they're in some hotels now. Yeah. They're basically like, 
we understand that people will buy iconic brands no matter what because mm-hmm. they're iconic. Right. And um and that's that's what we care about. Like, yeah. Um it's you know, we were both thinking about investing in a business that we both passed on. And one of our friends was like, look, I, my goal is to invest in the best provider of a service, no matter who it is. It wasn't Clavio, but let's say the Clavios of the world and right. the Sendlanes of the world. And you and I were both like more cautious about it because like uh, the, uh, we were like cautious about the valuation. But I, like they're almost like that. They're like, we want to invest in the best. We don't care about price. Yeah. Because our, our consumers won't care about price too. Yeah. In some, in some respects. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, I think that's a wrap for uh, this. Was there anything else? Sorry, I didn't know. That was it. Okay, this was a great episode. This, this is a fun. really good episode. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our next episode is going to be a Q&A from people in the Slack channel. Yeah. There were so many good questions here. I took a look at them uh, but uh, earlier today or like, you know, earlier when we were getting ready for this. There's so many good questions in that Slack group. Uh, I can't wait to get into that. So yeah, it's going to be Stick a around one. for season four next week. Episode. Episode four. Sorry. Next <laughs> week. Yes. All right. See ya. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next time to cut through the noise in CPG, retail, and e-commerce. And if you enjoyed this episode, then why not share it with a friend? And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you don't miss the next one.